Hey everybody, CJ here with another dose of Dangerous History. This is episode 162 of the Dangerous History Podcast, a modern-day grunts perspective, part four. And this is my fourth and final conversation with BT, a U.S. Army veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. And in this episode, we will mostly talk about issues that he has been facing since getting out of the military, the problems he's been having, both in terms of physical and mental health, and also in terms of getting the help he needs from the VA and all that kind of stuff. So I would highly recommend to you, if you have not already, that you listen to the prior episodes in the series first before listening to this one. So you have the whole story and those would be episodes 155, 156 and 159. But of course, before I launch into our conversation, I do have some thank yous to give out some excellent individuals who have stepped up to become Scholar Warrior supporters of the DHP since the last episode I recorded. So I have to say big thanks to Panda, Bill, Dark Alliance, Jeff, James, Ian, and Kyle. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the show via Patreon over at patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. And just as a reminder to all of you that if you pledge $5 per month or more, I will thank you by name in the next episode I record after you've signed up. You will also get access to special bonus DHP episodes that are released only in Patreon just for those Scholar Warrior supporters of the show. They are available nowhere else. And you will also get access to vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are now only available via Patreon. You'll also get early access to ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes. And lastly, you will be eligible to, if you so desire, join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. So I hope you will consider stepping up to support the show if you are not already a supporter. And if you are already a supporter, you should be listening to the Patreon version of this episode where all this stuff is cut out, along with all other advertisements. And I do have one more thank you to give out, and that is somebody who got me something off of my Amazon wish list. Big thanks to Tim for getting me the book The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom, which is a book I've heard about many times but never actually personally read. And I'm one of those people that if I keep hearing about a book, hearing about a book, and hearing people's opinions about a book, eventually I want to read it for myself to decide what I actually think about it myself. Of course, one negative side effect of this is that I always end up having a pile of about 800 books that I'm either in the process of reading or am intending to read. But anyway, thanks very much, Tim, for getting me something off of my DHP Amazon wish list. And one more announcement I think you'll definitely want to hear, just a reminder that as I'm recording this intro to this episode in about a week, I will be at... The 2018 Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, I will be there from Friday through Monday, and I will be speaking Sunday. I think last time I mentioned it, I said noon. It's been bumped up a half hour to 1230, so no big deal either way. But anyway, I will be speaking at 1230 p.m. on Sunday there. 
And I'm happy to meet anybody who is a listener of this show. And among the other speakers and presenters at this event will be Scott Horton, of course, foreign policy guru at the Scott Horton Show and the honcho of the Libertarian Institute. And also there will be Brett Vinat of the excellent School Sucks podcast. So really great event. I hope you can make it if you're anywhere near Michigan or are able to get to Michigan. And here is Lou from Freedom Fiends once again with the official ad for the fest. The 6th Annual Midwest Peace of Liberty Fest will be held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, from Thursday, June 21st through Monday, June 25th. There will be all sorts of activities in a family and adult-friendly environment. Scheduled speakers include Dana Martin, Brett Benat, Prof. CJ, and Scott Horton. Round up your friends and family members and get them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest. Dogs welcome. Longer leashes recommended. All right. So without further ado, let us launch into my final conversation with Army veteran BT in the modern day Grunt's Perspective miniseries on the Dangerous History Podcast. So, BT, thanks for coming back on the Dangerous History Podcast one more time to to share your story with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Sorry about the uh, the delay with moving. It took longer than I thought it would. No, I completely understand. I've I've dealt with that not in a while, but yeah, uh, yeah, moving is a pain. And then I was I was out of the country for a couple of weeks, and then I was down with the flu for a couple of weeks. So it's at least somewhat on me too that we've had such a tough time. Um, reconnecting since last time. But anyway, where we left off last time, we were starting to talk about your leaving the military after all the all the stuff you went through um, and all the places you were deployed and all that, and leaving the military and kind of the negative experiences that you were that you were going through on the way out and then once you were out. So kind of get us back into that story as far as what was your experience leaving the military and, and what did you start to deal with uh, in the aftermath of getting out? Oh, well, as far as leaving the military, I, I think it depends a little bit on what kind of job you have uh, as to how successful your transition is. But as far as my personal experience, once you start to have the dates that you're going to be discharged. Uh, you have a bunch of classes that you have to go through, uh, how to write a resume, how to go look for a job, uh, so on and so forth. And pretty much all of it is essentially useless as far as actual preparation and help is concerned because A, you're worried about the 500 different tasks that you're focusing on with having to move and getting ready to go become a civilian, that it's just really hard to listen to just more of the droning PowerPoint slide kind of uh, classes that are so familiar to being in the military. But as far as actual benefit, there I haven't really met anybody who said that the they, – they call it the uh, – they used to call it a capping. 
I forget what the uh, the acronym stands for, but you have basically five days of classes that you have to uh, sit through and them really actually provide any assistance, especially if you have one of those jobs that just does not translate over to the the civilian side of the world. Now, do people with your background as, you know, a helicopter mechanic and crew chief and all that, do people with that, that did those jobs in the military, do they usually have some success finding jobs uh, as mechanics or things like that in the civilian world or, or not? Or what's, what's your feel for that? Um, I mean, I've known people that have, have received benefit from it, depending, especially uh, like you said, on what type of job that you have. If you have a job, you know, like the, if you're a legal assistant or uh, a medical person, you usually have no problems at all. But in my particular case, being a helicopter mechanic, one of the things that you don't really think about is your certifications. And most of the time, the army's or the military certifications aren't what is required in the civilian world. So I could work on a helicopter in the army all day long. But once I got to the civilian world, I couldn't even look at one because I didn't have my airframe and power plant license. Now, the background and the uh, experience and education you do get in the military does help translate over, but it doesn't matter too much if you don't already have your uh, certifications. Hmm. Uh, That's interesting. You know, I had an experience, like I've mentioned before, I have a lot of veterans come through my classes at the college. And um, I had a student a while back who had been in the army and had been, I think also like you, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan and had been a combat medic and had, you know, based on, on what he shared with me, sounded like been in some pretty, pretty uh, sketchy, scary situations. And basically he was looking to become like a paramedic or EMT, that kind of thing. And he had a, he ended up running into kind of what you're describing in regard to mechanics where like, clearly this guy knows all the, the knowledge and skills and things to be successful at taking care of badly injured people and all that. Um, but you know, he still ended up having to like go through, you know, courses and getting all these additional things. And, you know, as you would expect, he was kind of frustrated because he's like, I already know way more than what they're making me go sit through and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it seems like there's just sort of a disconnect. Um, I don't know if, if there's any, if anyone's doing any, any work on that or whatever, as far as trying to like line up the credentials so that they translate more smoothly or something. The, the army has uh, a couple websites that are supposed to kind of uh, give you a roadmap for the, for what you're supposed to do, but it's not, again, the, you need to actually sit down and talk with somebody in the career field or whatever that you're looking for. Uh, funny enough, though, to the 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 combat medic that you were talking about, uh, uh, I was in EMT program uh, late last year, and it's kind of the final education that I was trying to do from the VA before I just completely gave up due to my disabilities. But in the class there, we had a Navy, a Navy corpsman, which is the, just their version of a medic. And, you know, he had all these 
all this skill. He he knew how to do uh, you know stuff that in civilian world would be nurse practitioner, uh, physician's assistant level stuff, but he couldn't do any of that. Uh, once one because he's on the civilian side, but two he never he never had his EMT basic certification. And that was something that was really surprising to me talking to a lot of medics uh, because I wanted to be a medic when I first entered. But uh, the Army said that I was too dumb to do that, uh, according to my 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 testing score. Um, Just sort of a little side tangent. But, you know, it's interesting that um, I'm pretty sure the military is the only the only career that can like legally still test you. And then place you in a job according to an actual like test score or IQ type score or whatever. I'm pretty sure that it's illegal for all other sectors of of employers um, to just like decide whether to hire you or not based on a test score or decide what job to put you in the company based on a test score. That's kind of it's just kind of funny. It's like a different set of rules. Yeah, I never really. I never really understood it because when I was enlisting to go into the army, again, I was in an EMT class, uh, cyclical, uh, event apparently. And, uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a combat medic and my scores came back, uh, pretty poorly just because I was not good at math. I, I aced all of the, the English portion of it, but as far as math, I just, it was not my friend as a child. And, uh, they have you take the test, but as far as trying to get you initially into a job that fits, there, there's essentially, uh, unless you have a very specific skill that you're trying to go for, uh, it's pretty much, here's a book, what do you want to do? And they'll tell you whether you're qualified to do the job or not, but there's no sit down, you know, oh, hey, well, what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? it it's pretty much... Whatever you choose, you're kind of on your own, especially back in those days. Maybe it's a little bit different, but the recruiting process was just they just wanted to throw every person that they could into the military, despite any uh, any actual disqualifications. Because, I mean, technically, if you want to look at my history, I shouldn't have been able to go into the army because of some uh, some medical stuff that I had as a kid. But again, the army didn't care. I went to the air force. They said, no, I went to the Navy. They said, no. And the army welcomed me with open arms because I was a person that could carry a gun. Yeah. I can remember reading articles in the press back in the George W. Bush years that, you know, various types of standards and things were being, were being waived or fudged or whatever. I remember reading one particular one where it was talking about, they were um, dropping, some of the physical fitness requirements and, you know, it just in an effort to, to get bodies in, into uniforms, you know, and, but then they're running into the problem of, well, then we got these recruits who are not all able to do the, the physical, you know, strenuous parts of the job. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, we even have that in, in college as well, where, you know, colleges will try to, at least colleges of the sort that I teach at, will try to just recruit more students to get the numbers up in classes and get the enrollment up and the tuition up. And the problem is, though, you run into the problem of what if all the people that are really qualified to be going to the college from the area are already in the college? And the only way that you can just juice the total enrollment is by recruiting people who really, really 
probably shouldn't be in college for one reason or another. Um, and so, you know, you get that situation where it's like, yeah, you get the, you get the enrollment numbers up, but like you just end up with a higher proportion who fail or drop out or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but anyway, then kind of a, kind of a, a side jaunt, but, um, I can't remember if, if you've mentioned this in any of our previous conversations or not, but in your, on your way out, when you were going through these classes, uh, to try and at least theoretically help you with, with finding a job or whatever, was there anything in any of those classes having to do with things like PTSD and those sorts of things and how to, how to identify it and how to, how to deal with it and how to seek help for it? Were they, did they do much on that sort of stuff? Not a single bit. And I guess that would be a, a good area to kind of transition back into. So yeah, there, there's, there's no identification at all of medical problems and the exact process that I went through. And I'm, I, I can pretty much guarantee everybody went through is once you're in the medical procedure, you have a bunch of steps that you have to go through and timelines and so forth. But one of the last things that you do once you are approved to be medically retired or uh, discharged is they sat me down in a little tiny room and said, tell me what's wrong with you. Write down the things, write down your medical problems. And so I wrote down like the three things of that were wrong with me. And he takes the paper, says thank you. And then they'll schedule you an appointment with the VA for you to go and be evaluated by your initial VA intake. But there's no like, hey, maybe these are problems or, hey, do you have problems with this? There, there was no – it was basically throw you, throw you a yellow notepad and uh, tell me what you can remember, which is what really takes down uh, a lot of us coming out because – I don't know what's wrong with me, especially because, you know, I've been living this life for however many years and I've been ignoring every pain that I've had. It's hard for me to remember the things that I've gone through, especially with me. I had severe memory problems from my TBI that was never, uh, that was never recorded. So your medical records don't really follow you. And I mean, you have to go and you have to request them. And it actually wasn't until the medical board, the person who was in charge of my overall process, she was actually the one that was like, hey, you might have PTSD because we saw here that, you know, you had you had attempted suicide and uh, this flag and the other came up and I had absolutely no memory of it. So if it wasn't for her going through my medical records, which I mean, you know, to caveat all the the negative things that I say, there are good people, uh, but unfortunately, it seems to be rather few, far and few in between, uh, with people that actually are genuine about caring. And you know, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, you see so many hundreds of veterans. At some point, you just kind of get uh, not complacent. That's not the word that I'm looking for. But basically, you just be, you just don't care anymore because it's the same story you keep hearing over and over. Uh, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. You you get kind of numb to it. I mean, it's something that you know in a, in a different way. I think you can see in a place like uh, law enforcement or a place like um, you know public education where 
people go into that and they often over time, they, they get worn out, they get um, kind of jaded and that sort of thing. And, you know, of course, not everybody who goes into any of those fields are, are good people or competent people. But, you know, there there are decent people in, in every job who are trying to do a good job. But yeah, I mean, people kind of get worn out. Um, you know, I, I, people I know who have been in like jobs where they're helping uh, children with like serious, uh, legit, you know, psychiatric problems and whatever. I mean, um, after a while, like when you have enough, enough horrific uh, children with horrific stories coming through, you know, your care or whatever, or your custody, it's like, you just get sort of, sort of numb to it. And it just, you know, like any job, it just kind of starts to become a job. But it is, it is surprising that they, they didn't bother to even like, you know, while they're going through all these PowerPoints about how to write a resume or whatever, they couldn't have even gone through a little PowerPoint presentation about like, these are some common signs of PTSD or, you know, some common signs of other, other afflictions or what have you. And I wonder, it it was, I'm trying to remember, um, what, what year would it have been that you were exiting the army? Uh, 2014. I got out in February, 2014. Okay. So not long enough ago that probably things have changed much then I would guess for, for people going through that. I mean, um, no. And I mean, it might, it might be even worse at this point talking about throwing standards out the being in the army and military, you just see this. We were constantly going back and forth between, Oh, you know, we need, let's just say 10,000 more infantry guys. And then so they'll get their infantry and then seriously within the next two months, they'll be like, oh, we've got 40,000 too many infantry guys. So now we need to get rid of those. And it's just this back and forth of we have a severe shortage or we have a severe overage. Uh, and I mean, I'm sure at some point there's probably difficulties for uh, the bean counting type people to make all the numbers work. But it just shows a uh, – continual uh, problem inherent with so many people that it's hard to do these things that, you know, to you and I seem more common sense, like telling soldiers about the things that they might have. And even worse to me, even worse beyond that, the families don't get told anything either. My wife had absolutely no clue about anything. I mean, I, I kept myself, I kept everything so private. My wife hardly even knew what I did. Uh, I mean, I never talked about it when I came home. It wasn't until these past maybe year or so that, like, I've started telling stories, and my wife's like, "You never told me that." Yeah, I mean, you you would have to kind of like go out there and do do your own research or something. I mean, I've just as an historian who sometimes studies the history of wars and things like that. I mean, I've read a couple books written by psychiatrists and people like that, just about PTSD, you know, just to try and get some sort of an understanding. And it just seems like much of the general public, and I would imagine even much of the people in the military, um, just don't really have a real good understanding of what it is. So can you walk us through just a sketch of some of the the things you've dealt with in regard to that and kind of what you, th- what you would want to say in terms of things that people just might not understand about PTSD or, or things that might be different uh, than what most people would expect, especially in case if anyone's listening who might have it and doesn't realize it kind of thing. I, so uh, like, 
like you were talking about, I've done a lot of research, especially over these past few years into you know, PTSD and specifically with going into combat. And then my wife has a, a master's in psychology. So we've got a pretty good footing for eventually learning all the stuff that we know. PTSD manifests itself differently in, a, in pretty much every person. It's kind of, it's unique to each person. And I definitely, probably one of the biggest first things is that it's looked at as something, as some sort of a weakness, like, oh, you just, you just couldn't handle this, which is to begin pretty upsetting because every time that I have been told by like a former soldier or something who's told me that, that, oh, you know, you're, you're just a pussy who can't handle it. I, I had one guy tell me that Marcus Luttrell was able to get over his PTSD and he was a Navy SEAL. So you, you just need to stop being a bitch and get over it and go get a real job. And the ironic thing is I know for a fact that the guy who said that to me has PTSD himself, but uh, that's, that's probably the biggest secret. Most, most of us out there have no idea that we have it because it's, because it's, become part of our personality. Like for me, I used to be really easygoing. Like it would take a lot to actually get me mad. And at this point, like it's very easy to put me into a lot of anger, not to the point of like, you know, punch holes in the wall and everything, but I've definitely seen my fair share uh, of that kind of PTSD with some of the veterans that I've dealt with or interacted with throughout my time. So for me, you know, I've got the anger issue. Now I have a, a pretty big delay in cognition and my wife definitely sees it a lot. She'll ask me a question and almost instantly I'll just be like, huh, what? And then maybe there's another five, five or so seconds in between that until I finally realize uh, I'm able to put all the pieces together as to what's being said. There's a a big memory aspect to it. And then more of the, I, don't know, I guess the things that people would be more uh, predictive as to what happens. Uh, you know, I have a hard time seeing a group of men together because I've always been trained that, you know, those are people that are bad. Yeah. If there's a pothole in the road for the longest time, like I would not freak out, but I mean, like I would get over just because I didn't want to be anywhere near it. If there's a pile of trash in the road, uh, overpasses were uh, pretty difficult for me to handle too, just because, you know, these are all places that in my mind are wired to be things that are going to try to kill me, people that are going to try to hurt me. And once you have that wiring changed in your brain, and especially, you know, going to a combat zone each and every single day, you're wondering if you are going to be killed that day, if you're going to make it through the day, if you're going to be able to talk to your family. And that, that has a huge impact on your mental health, just being flooded with a uh, your fight or flight chemicals day after day after day, your brain gets rewired 
And it is an exceptionally challenging process to change that wiring. Usually within the term of decades, if you are lucky enough to know what is wrong or be able to navigate the problems well enough to make improvements. And I've seen a lot of people that don't make improvements. And unfortunately, it's led to a lot of people that I've known throughout my uh, military career killing themselves because there is no assistance. There is no acceptance of the problem. And I mean, pretty much it's either at the bottom of a bottom of a bottle or the bottom of a barrel that we find our our coping mechanisms. Yeah, that's one of those things that the mainstream just doesn't like to talk about very often is the suicide rate amongst military veterans, which is just like out of control when you compare it to just the general public at large's suicide rate. Um, there's clearly a lot of things going wrong there. Uh, I think it's I think it's interesting the way you described how other people sort of you know treat it as if it's just like a weakness or something like that. Um, to have it because what that immediately made me think of is the famous scene in the movie Patton where, you know, based on the real life story where, where there's the guy who basically is suffering from PTSD, you know, what back then they might've called shell shock um, and is, you know, taking a break from the battlefield in a hospital or whatever. And then Patton like slaps him and yells at him and all this sort of thing. And, and I know that like, that's the kind of thing that, a lot of guys who go into the military, like those are the types of movies they watch that then kind of like informs their view on the way things are supposed to be, you know, another potentially at least another case of, of real life kind of imitating the movies. It's, it's exactly, uh, I mean, that's more you what the military is as opposed to these ideas that, you know, there's this brotherhood and camaraderie and everyone, you know, all the military wives get together and everything's uh, hunky-dory. And it it pretty much is – there There comes a point, you know, between like, you know, a group of guys just talking shit to each other. There's a difference between that and the, the things that we go through and the way that it's responded to. And most of the most of the things are completely ignored, or you are so you are so conditioned to not think about it. Right before I got out, one of my, my soldiers in Alaska, uh, he was getting discharged because he had he said he had bipolar disorder, and I didn't know anything about it. And I was just like, "Well, you know, it's that's uh, you know, it's pretty shitty." And he said that he didn't have it when he came into the military. Hmm. Uh, and he had been in the medical board for probably seven months and, uh, beyond when he should have been in the military or when he should have gotten out. And I went to the person in charge of his, uh, paperwork to see what was going on and why he was still in. And apparently somebody put his folder underneath a pile of papers and, uh, it just happened to not be seen. So uh, eventually it was it got sorted out and he was uh, he got his medical discharge and then I don't know, I think a year or two years ago now, I, I I was diagnosed with bipolar as well. So I mean the whole time I'm talking to him, I'm listening to him about all the problems that he has, but I'm not making that connection that oh shit, these are the same things that I have. 
Mm. Again, there, there's there's no there's no looking out for each other. Typically, because all of your medical problems are looked down upon. Now, another thing that I've that's come to my mind um, listening to you today and in previous conversations as well. Uh, another kind of parallel outside the military in regard to the, some of this stuff um, has to do with something that, you know, maybe just adding more problems, I would guess, to to the PTSD itself and other things. And that is head trauma. And, you know, you've mentioned before that you've had some head trauma. I have to imagine that in all branches of the military, head trauma has to be a relatively common uh, thing. When you when you think about all the different jobs and all the branches of the military, you know, I mean, even even if you're a, a sailor or something like that, like you're going to bang your head on a on a ship or a submarine or whatever, you know, when you're you're running around in rough seas or whatever. And so I'd imagine there's there's more head trauma. Um, and then if you actually are, are deployed to an active war zone and that even, you know, there's more head trauma um, and that then you combine it with this kind of culture of not wanting to not wanting to ask for medical help and that sort of thing. And it also made me think of the similarities to professional and college football where, you know, that's starting to get some attention now. Uh, the, the amount of head trauma that a, that a serious football player goes through over the course of their career. And um, I think it was actually a recent episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Uh, he talked about, some some college football students who suddenly went from being like very uh very happy and very uh bright guys you know who their their football career was going well their their college um classes were going well like they were just they seemed to be guys just like doing great in all aspects of life and then all of a sudden they like start having all sorts of problems and eventually you know not only do they start like having problems in school and having social problems or whatever, but some of them eventually commit suicide. And, you know, the common factor, and there's a lot of pro players who similar thing, you know, later in life after they retire or whatever, they suddenly just kind of, you know, get sick basically. So what are, what are your thoughts on, on the, the role of head trauma as like another, another thing that's, that's feeding all the, all this negative stuff. Uh, so, I mean, head trauma is a really big thing and they, you know, I, I never considered a lot of the, uh, the explosions that I was going through at the time as being a problem, uh, until rather recently when I was, uh, you know, working on my updating all of my medical information with the new things that I've discovered. And even, even just something as simple as, hitting your head on a, like I, I repeatedly hit my head at the top of my uh, helicopter just because you can't stand up all the way. And sometimes if you're, you know, if you're carrying a, a, a part or something out of the helicopter, uh, I mean, it's easy to misjudge. And we have this, there, there's a lot of, you know, sharp, hard edges and the same thing with inside vehicles and such. And it's one of the few places that I think the army at least tries, because if you're, you're not supposed to drive a military vehicle without wearing your uh, your your bulletproof helmet, or uh, we just call it a, a Kevlar helmet. And it was always just really annoying because you you have to wear this big giant helmet just driving down the road. But you know, thinking about it back now, 
um, it it is a good thing because you do have the where you hit your head, and there's a lot of parallels between NFL. The NFL, it's come out really big lately with the the head injuries, and we're starting to see the the effects of the CTE, which uh, it's like it's 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 uh, one of the injuries to the head that you get from having concussions. And you can't you can't test for it. There's no way of knowing until you do an autopsy of the person. And there's a lot of uh, football players. Uh, last time I checked, that they had done studies on like 31, uh, 31 former NFL players and football players that their the families let the the doctors look at them. And I think out of the 32, 31 of them had signs of CTE. Which essentially is you know, premature, premature Alzheimer's disease, uh, where your brain starts to build up this this plaque substance uh, from responding to the inflammation and swelling of when you actually have a uh, concussion, and this plaque acts the same exact way as if you had Alzheimer's disease. You start having poor to no judgment on a making decisions as to whether something is smart or not. So a lot of times you'll see, like I, I know one guy who uh, put his motorcycle through a, a minivan at like 120 miles an hour. And it's so, it's very easy to dismiss it as, oh, what well, you mean anything from, oh, he's an asshole to, uh, oh, he was drunk or, um, oh, you know, he was just being foolish. And a lot of, military are getting killed or injured in these events and no one's taking into account the the fact that without any care without any assistance if you have these type of injuries and if you have the need to fulfill because it's it is like a drug as far as what being in the especially in a combat zone does to you because you have all those chemicals you're constantly high off of your fighter and then when you come back there's there's nothing that can replicate that so you see these poor decisions whether it's uh brain injury related or not but that's why you you see a lot of really foolish things and it's just it's very easy to dismiss and ignore well not ignore but not be cognizant of the fact that maybe there was something else going on and it's not just, you know, poor decisions that are being made by somebody just say on a motorcycle. Yeah. And like the, the military, the pro football and also college football have a culture of, you know, it's partly like machismo of being a tough guy. And so you, you, don't want to ask for medical help and admit to injury and go on the injured list and get taken out of the game, so to speak. And, and it's, you know, in part, it's your, your teammates all having the ethic of that. If you go out on injury, you're not doing your fair share, you know, not, not schlepping your load to help the team or whatever. It seems like that's a, that's a very clear, you know, commonality um, between, between professional and college sports and the military, just as far as that goes. And then, then that makes it to where people are reluctant, you know, whether it's something more mundane, like a, like a pulled 
tendon or a knee injury or something more serious like a head injury. There's a reluctance to actually go seek the help you need and that sort of thing. I just think that's a that's an interesting parallel. And, you know, since football players are, at least if they're pro, they're paid a lot better and they get a lot more fame and media attention. You know, I mean, it's good that attention is going on to the, the bad parts of, of that, but it seems like there's, you know, not as much not as much interest in the media um, in looking into, you know, veterans and all that kind of goes along with the not wanting to talk about the suicide rates much and all that sort of thing. Um, but w- what have you found? I mean, I know you're still you're still dealing with all sorts of issues, but. I mean, it sounds like you're doing better in general than you were, you know, maybe a few years ago when you were kind of um, really having having a hard time. Um, what have you found to be helpful for you in coping with your PTSD in terms of ways to, to manage it or whatever that are that are at least somewhat positive that are not just like, you know, drinking a gallon of booze or, or, uh, chasing the dragon or something like what, what have you found has been helpful to you in coping with it? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the biggest thing is my wife because so many times kind of the, the, the final trigger is the, you know, a breakup of the family or just complete, uh, lack of understanding uh, of the situation that the veteran is going through and the veteran for the, uh, the spouse, because I mean, it's, it's on both ends and there, there never is any assistance from the, from the military, from the VA community that is out there to help. Um, I have one other thing that I want to go back to, but, uh, I want to just keep going on this. Sure. My my wife has gone through several years of trying to get something through the VA called the Caregiver Support Program. This is supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to provide uh, somebody to help my wife to, you know, provide counseling for her because she's going through everything j- equally on her own as I am as far as the uh, the medical community is concerned. And... She has applied three times now, and she's been denied every single time because they say that uh, I do not meet the medical requirements for the program. So, I mean, just uh, I'm 100% disabled. I've got uh, the severe PTSD, the TBI. I've got some physical injuries, but most of my injuries are either – pain related or uh mental related but since i left the military uh i've been around my wife almost completely and for the past i'd say year uh i mean i haven't been i haven't gone a day that i've left and not been around uh my wife and she she is completely my caretaker i I forget to take my medication. I forget shower. Uh, I'll forget to eat. Uh, I mean, I just, it's very difficult for me to remember most things. So she makes sure that I, uh, I do all of these, you know, basic tasks. And they told her the last time that I am not, uh, 
I'm not injured enough and she can't expect things like making sure I take my medicine to be a caregiver, which it's, it's really frustrating because when you look at the actual requirements, we exceed every single one of those, but the VA just has the ultimate power that they say, no, we're not going to do it. And that's, that's the end of it, whether it's in the disability trying to get your medical problems uh, looked at, it's pretty much always the same way. I went in for migraines because I, I have really bad migraines, again, which my wife helps me with. And I meet the classification for, I think, 50% or 30% on migraines. Uh, and it took me four years for them to give me a 10% rating and the reason why it happened isn't because I don't meet the, the criteria. It's because every time I go to the VA, they either ignore what my medical paperwork says or they lie about it. So I was denied my uh, increase on migraines because they say you don't, have, you don't have migraines enough. You only have had one migraine, even though the medical paperwork that they have in front of them says, you know, I have – one to three migraines a week, they can just ignore ignore what the uh, the paperwork says, and it just repeats itself again with denying my wife the actual support that she needs. And there is a monetary aspect to it, but far more, more importantly, it, it's actually the the psychological care for my wife, for the caregiver, and to provide somebody to give assistance to these things. So it, it's really important to have a caregiver, and it's really um, it's really frustrating to see that the the system that is supposed to be in place to provide care for the spouses, uh, they're denied just as much as the veterans are for for the medical care that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everybody's kind of, everybody's kind of getting screwed over. Um, so what else have you found? Like, you know, if, if there's anybody listening um, who's, who's dealing with PTSD from, from anything, whether it's uh, being in war or just, you know, being in a horrible accident or being a victim of a horrible crime or whatever, like what are just some things that you've found that are helpful? Aside from obviously having a supportive, a supportive spouse or other other person, um, you know, that can help you out. Like, what else has seemed helpful and in like a, a healthy way? You know, not not just again, not just like oh, I feel better when I when I uh, shoot up on heroin. Because obviously, you know, with the opiate epidemic and all that, that is a way a lot of people are self medicating, and I'm sure it does help in the short term. But what what have you found that's been helpful? Weed. I mean. Yeah, and I know because uh, you just talked about drugs, but uh, yeah, well, I mean that's you know that's not nearly as yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Uh, just going from the uh, this the common social aspect or uh, interpretation of it, but seriously, if it wasn't for weed, I definitely would not be alive right now. The I don't I don't know how to describe it because obviously I've you know I'm going through my thing, but depression and PTSD, which I mean PTSD is just a different form of you know depression, however what you want to look at it. Um, 
but it's like you're constantly drowning. Like no matter, no matter how hard you try yourself, you just can't. I mean, it's, it's simply beyond the ability to just get over it as so many people say, but the being able to take marijuana kind of releases a lot of those things. And I mean, besides not being alive, I definitely wouldn't be where I am, you know, health wise or just knowing the things about myself that are wrong without being able to, you know, it lets me step outside of myself and become much more self-aware and, and compared to the other treatments that you get, especially uh, like antidepressants and everything, I, I, I've been put on like pretty much every antidepressant world through all these different medications. And, you know, I'd been in therapy for a couple years and it wasn't until about, uh, a, a, about a year ago that when I was moving from one doctor that I saw at the last minute who uh, diagnosed me as bipolar and, uh, and this, that being bipolar is just another, uh, kind of a side effect from getting PTSD and the TBI. You just kind of stack up all these big mental health problems on each other. But if you are bipolar, you should not be in on antidepressants that, that it's horrible for your brain chemistry and makes your problems worse. So you know, taking a look at it, being on this medication, dealing with psychiatrists who uh, don't listen or are just more more concerned about pushing these uh, these pharmaceutical drugs on you. Um, there's very little like, hey, what kind of side effects is this going to have? The the great thing about marijuana is it I don't have any negative side effects. One of the big, huge side effects that I'm sure most people are aware of with antidepressants is suicide, especially in the uh, the the veteran community. And this isn't like some conspiracy theory because I can guarantee you and, you know, uh, a lot of what I was doing originally with my my website was like, you know, documenting all these these problems uh, that the the veteran community goes through, but I definitely feel that the the main overarching goal of the VA is to try to get veterans to commit suicide so that they don't have to pay out benefits anymore. And I guess I shouldn't just throw that down and uh, like just walk, walk right by it. But to you know to to wrap wrap up talking about uh, the weed. The the VA is, ha, is funny because they can they can take away your benefits if they find out that you are on marijuana. Which again, you know, it. I live in California now, so I, I can take it medically, and I don't have to. I don't have any problems with it. But as far as the the medical side is concerned, I can't say it. You know, I can't say, hey, I'm taking I'm taking marijuana, and I want to make sure I don't have any any side effects and. You know, uh, marijuana isn't good for bipolar either, but it's it comes to one of those things that you know you kind of have to pick and choose your battles. So being on the medication that I am on for my bipolar, like I, I, I flush like intensely, 
I'll, I'll feel like I have a sunburn on the back of my neck. And the medication and the drug, uh, uh, pharmaceutical drugs are a really big problem in the VA because they don't let you, you know, try the medical, uh, alternatives and pretty much it's just either antidepressants or, uh, you talked about opium before the VA pretty much started the opium epidemic that we are in now. And it just kind of, you know, ties over with what I said about the, the VA trying to do everything in their power to either ignore you or, you know, try to push the the veterans that are in my position of being suicidal to uh, trying to make that happen. Um, I don't. I, have I talked about any of my uh, my medical encounters since I've gotten out? Um, you may have in our last conversation. I don't remember. It's. Um, I haven't. I haven't gone back and re-listened to it since I published it. So it's been a while. So. Overall, what what sorts of medical problems have you been dealing with lately? Uh, things got pretty bad for me uh, right before I left uh, Missouri to move here to uh, California. And uh, like I said, I, I was diagnosed bipolar uh, right as I was leaving Missouri. And so I was given like a 30-day uh script for the medication to try to help with the bipolar. And I, when we moved, uh, here to the VA facility that, uh, serviced where I'm at, uh, I went and I made an appointment and you have to, even though you're in the VA system, you always have to do a new patient, uh, appointment uh, where like you can't do anything until you have this appointment. And I walked into the VA clinic saying like, Hey, you know, I'm on this medication. I'm not being monitored for it. Uh, I, I'm not having, nothing's being managed. Uh, I'm chronically suicidal and, you know, really bad PTSD. And, uh, they pretty much said, well, you have to have your, your initial appointment appointment. Uh, we don't know anything that's wrong with you. We can't, we can't, you know, provide you any services. Never mind the fact that I'd already been in the VA system for three, four years now, and everything is well documented. Uh, so the new patient appointment, I think it was like three days later. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Once I went to it, uh, and I got scheduled for my next appointment, they they scheduled it out like five weeks. And I said like, hey, look, my medication's not going to last that long. Um, and I really need to be seen. And the, the the clerk's response was, you just have to deal with it, you know. Uh, and so I tried finding other routes. I was like, hey, well, you know, do you have a, an emergency to try to help uh, bridge the gap that I have? And I was told no. So I did the only thing that I could, and I waited the five weeks. And when I came back for that appointment, they had – basically when I showed up, the appointment had been canceled. And uh, you know, at this point, it had been like six weeks. My, I had maybe 
just a couple of days because I was able to get an extension on my medication, but it was the only one that I could do. And I had to go to the emergency room of my local hospital to, to get that. And when I walked in, the, they said the appointment was canceled because the provider didn't show up. And the only reason that I knew about it is because I had to come in to do my, uh, my lab testing. And that was kind of like a final straw uh, broke. And I, I, uh, I, don't, I don't remember this. And it's just another one of those uh, memory lapses. But, uh, I mean, I, I was going around saying that I'm going to kill somebody in the, uh, the VA clinic, that I'm going to kill myself, and I just want to be seen. And so they kicked me out of the hospital. And as I was driving away, the, the clinic called me and they're like, oh, well, hey, you need to, uh, you need to come back here, funny enough, after they kicked me out. And I said, like, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming back in. I'm not coming back in there right now because I'm pretty upset about what had uh, transpired. And their response was to call the sheriff's department on me saying that I was probably going back home to kill my wife. So uh, and then the, they called my wife to tell her, tell her, hey, your husband is going crazy and he's probably coming to kill you. So you should get the kids and yourself out of the house. This is what the the VA said to my wife. Wow. Um, Jesus. So there, no, it's not, we're not done. <laughs> we're not done yet. Um, so eventually I, I kind of got everything settled down and I made a new appointment. And when I went for that next appointment, you know, I, I was, I was calm. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm okay. I just want to get this taken care of. So I don't have to keep coming back into this horrible place. You know, so they took me back. I, everybody noted that I was you know, completely, completely calm and rational. Uh, and then I was waiting in the room waiting for the doctor to show up. Well, she opens the door and before she even walks in her first statement to me, me is am i going to have a problem with you because i heard what you did the last time which is never never a good way to start a, a medical appointment with somebody who is and uh screaming for emergency mental health care but i was able to you know kind of wade through that i was like no you know uh it, uh she, she kept trying to tell me about how it's not her fault she she had some some personal appointment problem. And I, I kept saying like, you know, I don't, I don't care about that. I just want to get this appointment done. Uh, so she sat down and she had her back to me facing the computer, just asking me, uh, questions for the, uh, the demographics and everything. And then she said, what is wrong with you? And I, I, can you explain? I don't know what you mean. And she said, what are your problems? And again, I was like, I need more, more, because uh, I've got a lot of problems. I've got a lot of medical problems. I need you to be more specific. And th there, there was, a, there was a, a period of just this really harsh callousness that I was getting from her. And I said, you know, um, can I please have some proper bedside manners that you would expect from a physician? 
to not come in and try to, uh, you know, agitate and show absolutely no concern for the patient at all. And when I said that, she stood up from her computer, took her uh, ID card out of the computer, and just walked out of the room. So I just sat there, like, stunned for a couple seconds, and I stood up. And she was already walking down the hallway. And I said, like, that that was too much for me to ask for, you know, to be treated with respect. And at that point, she starts screaming, screaming in the medical facility that I need to be removed immediately and that uh, I am a threat. So, you know, at this point, this it's not going well. Uh, it's not going well at all. Right. And uh, I, I, I mean, it, if you want to talk about the the most embarrassing situation you can be in, it's being in a in a hospital with your doctor running up and down the hallway screaming that you need to be removed because you're crazy. Everybody coming out of their little offices and staring at you and uh, realizing that you're never going to be able to go back to this uh, facility that's supposed to be there to help you. And so I, I looked at her and I was like, it's providers <coughs> like you that are the reason why veterans kill themselves because we come for assistance and that is what we – that is the type of uh, situation that we are put into. And unfortunately, there, there, there was no like, actual happy conclusion to that story. And it, it, it was the, the, the thing that set me down the path that I am on because every single attempt that I did to have some type of Trying to trying to resolve the situation, like, hey, this provider fucked up, and this is not the way to be treating any patient, let alone somebody with the uh, the situation that I was in. And when I read her medical notes that she wrote in there about my uh, our encounter, she said that you know she was fearing for her life that I had just gone. I had just gone berserk out of nowhere, and I I, I had po- I had posted the entire thing on my website, so I won't I mean I won't go into too much detail. But she said that she thought that I was going to kill her. Never mind the fact that in her medical record she says that you know I was pleasant to begin with, and there just becomes a point where she says, oh you know he went crazy, and so I tried to call I tried to contact the the director of the clinic. I, her. Well, I was told that there is no director because the director's on vacation and there's not a secondary director. So kind of no assistance. So then I went to, okay, well, let me talk to, you know, the next level of person in the healthcare system. And it was, again, just being ignored. So then I was like, okay, well, let me talk to my uh, congressman. That took, that took six months. And in that six months period, uh, they sent a letter to to the VA system, you know, asking like, "Hey, what's up?" And again, the, I, I have all this documented, and the response from the director of the entire Los Angeles VA system uh, basically said that it was my fault that I was the one who refused to receive medical care, and that they did everything in their power, and then like that was it, and. Uh, 
was when my congressman's office said, yeah, I mean, that's good enough. There, there's nothing else that needs to be done with that. Ne- never mind, you know, all of the actual questions that I had. So I, I went through every single avenue that there was all the way up to they, they created this hotline for DC that was supposed to be, you know, if you have problems, call it and they'll fix it, uh, whatever the case may be. It's been it's been almost a year now. I've still never heard back from them. There's never been a single conversation about like, oh, hey, shit, sorry. Maybe we shouldn't have had this person providing medical care. But it's just a it's a peep show into kind of what veterans and I'm sure I'm sure this isn't solely for the the military community, but there's just there's no there's no care there's no compassion to the point i even i went to the regulating agency for california for because she was a nurse practitioner and you know i sent in my my complaints and everything and they told me yeah we don't see a problem so we're closing your case i know it's kind of uh, just going on and on but the the realization that you know you were promised all of this care and everything when something goes wrong you're going to be taken care of because that's one of the things that they use to get you into the military and then once you get out and you realize that you have providers walking in trying to get someone who is suicidal to commit suicide uh it's pretty i can't think of the word but i mean it's yeah i definitely don't think it's the the image that most people have when it comes to uh caring for veterans yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a giant bureaucracy with all of the negative characteristics of any giant bureaucracy, and then you know you're you're just kind of a a piece in the machine to them, is what it sounds like, you know. And you're sort of running out of your usefulness, and you know that's just kind of the way it is. We've heard a lot over the past bunch of years about Gulf War illness. What's your your take on that, and have any of your problems fit the description of that as far as, as you can tell? Um, so as far as right now, the information that comes out about Gulf War uh, illness, I have every single I have every single diagnosis. and I mean, uh, just to, I lump Gulf War illness and burn pit uh, exposure together because I, th- I think they're just one and the same. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about I mean, that this, too. This is something that the VA – yeah, I, I lump it in as the same, I, I think, because the, the, the symptoms are pretty much exactly the same. So, so the VA fought this just like they're fighting – they still to this day are fighting uh, Agent Orange – uh, exposures for Vietnam veterans, even though this is completely known science, right. uh, as pit, just because that's more of uh, the lane that I'm used to. But the the burn pit comes from the fact that when we set up all of our, our bases, we had nowhere to put all the the trash. And obviously, you know, you get a couple, couple ten thousand people. There's a lot of trash that gets. Uh, that is accumulated. Yeah, it's basically so a little, early it's a little city. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the first thing that they did was we're just going to pour diesel on it and we're going to light it on fire. 
And it was only supposed to be a temporary measure that extended out. And I, I think in like 2008, the DOD or put like a, uh, a requirement for actual incinerators to be installed in the, uh, the bases because burn pits are very hazardous to your health. I mean, they're burning, they're burning, you know, your trash, they're burning furniture, or they're burning medical waste, they're burning dead dogs, they're burning tires, it, anything and everything was being thrown into these pits. And they, the, they never actually installed the incinerators because they said they cost too much. And the Kellogg Brown and Root, or KBR, was the company that was uh, running the burn pits. So there was a requirement for them to change it, and they did not. So you fast forward a couple years, and all of these uh, veterans start coming down with these really weird uh, medical problems, and medical problems that you typically don't just you know you don't just acquire it. It's not like walking down the street and you catch the you catch the flu. You, you know there there's some very interesting uh, like respiratory uh, problems, a lot of skin problems, and it has been a, a game of denial uh, pretty much ever since the issue has been raised and they set up and down that, you know, well, 91 Gulf War, they they had Gulf War illness, but that was just them and we don't even believe it anyway. Uh, but you guys don't have it. And eventually enough of us started saying, hey, we have all the symptoms that the other guys did that the the VA and the DOD was like, all right, well, you know, we'll set up this list. There's a burn pit registry that you're supposed to fill out all the information, the medical problems you have, where you were, and they're supposed to use it to do research. Uh, that's That's been going on for over 10 years now. And an article just came out uh, today that the uh, – there was a congressional hearing on burn pit Gulf War to try to see what is going on. The the DOD didn't show up. They they just said fuck it, we're not coming. Which I they can just do whatever they want. <laughs> I don't know how you choose to get yeah. And it it it. I mean it it's you can see it over and over because it is a constant denial saying that oh. Well, there's no science. There's absolutely no knowledge of whether burn pits are, you know, actually hazardous or not. And you know, we don't think that there was a problem. There's no medical science that shows that uh, there's any health risk, which is, you know, completely laughable. Because if you just go on the EPA website uh, under burning backyard trash, it says, "Hey, you shouldn't do this because it's extremely hazardous to your health." And I mean. Your average person isn't going to be throwing, you know, amputated arms or the the types of materials that were going into these burn pits and that were being inhaled. In my first deployment to Mosul, I mean, you smelled the burn pit every single day. There were days that there would just be this haze over you. And it's just this really, uh, really nauseating experience just because of all the noxious fumes and then uh, you turn around, even after 10 years, somehow 
we can still have, uh, I guess you could call them scientists, although I, I, I question their uh, credentialing at this point, and say that, hey, there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no health risk to what you went through. And uh, again, it's kind of that, it's a continuation of the, oh, hey, you're just a pussy, get over it kind of uh, mentality, even though the actual, the actual diagnosis code was uh, something like unexplainable, unexplainable medical conditions. So if you have a bunch of medical conditions and you can't explain how you got them, essentially that is your, your Gulf War or your uh, burn pit exposure. But so even to this day, there's no, there's no medical rating for the VA for these, uh, for the Gulf War syndrome. And if you can't prove that you've got your uh, medical problems in another way, then you're going to be denied. And if you're the, the burn pits, all you have, you're, you're, you're going to be denied with the exception. I will say that I am rated, uh, for asthma, I never had asthma my entire life until I came back from my first deployment. And then breathing became really, uh, really difficult. And it wasn't until I think two years ago that I was actually diagnosed with asthma, uh, just kind of continuation of nothing ever being diagnosed. Uh, and they actually did list that as a uh, burn pit illness for me, but all my other attempts and the attempts of several people that have tried to help have pretty much gone ignored because the they're just allowed to pretty much say like you know oh well you're just making up this illness and there there is a there's a lawsuit that's been going on for uh, some time against uh, KBR because they were illegally uh, illegally operating these burn pits. And obviously, uh, lawsuits and everything take just uh, an extreme amount of time. And the last two times that this uh, this lawsuit has gone up to an uh, in front of a judge, it's been denied both times, saying you know that there's no there's no proof. All this is uh, you know KBR did nothing wrong, and for some reason. Every time the case goes back to court, they send it to the same judge. So he just keeps denying it, and it's this never-ending game of you have people dying of issues from uh, the these combat-related uh, exposures. I don't know if you heard, but uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, his son – recently died of a, uh, I can't remember if, I believe it was a cancer, but I know it was directly related to burn pit, burn pit exposure. And he's kind of the first high profile kind of person. And I mean, even with that, there's still just complete and utter denial to the fact that this is a problem. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a documentary made about the burn pits issue. Um, it's the main reason that I knew a little bit about this um, before talking to you. But there was a documentary actually with the long title of "Delay, Deny, Hope You Die," all about the burn pits and that sort of thing. I don't know if you've if you're familiar with it, but uh, came out I think last year. Uh, I I don't recall if I I have seen it. I think I heard about it, but uh, it's just one of those things that I just. <laughs> 
I prefer not to watch it because that just gets my, my blood pressure up and it's usually not very helpful. Yeah, I've, I've actually not watched the documentary, but I'll see if I've, I can find the website for it or something, and I'll put it in the show notes if anyone's interested. And I, I only know about it because um, the director of the film was on the Scott Horton show talking about this. And you know, before that, I had no idea about the whole burn bit thing. And so I was listening to him, I was like, holy cow. It's just, I mean, these are the sorts of things that if a private company was doing that in America— I mean, the EPA would come down on them like a 10,000 pound truckload of bricks, you know? Um, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing your business would get shut down if you were doing that with your trash back home in America. Um, it's just incredible. But I, I wanted to ask you a few questions, sort of like, you know, kind of looking back on things and tying things together. So um, one of them was, how have your kind of overall, how has your overall worldview changed? You mentioned before that before you went into the army, you were really kind of like non-political, didn't really have an opinion on, on, you know, the kind of big political picture and war and all these sorts of things. But how would you say that your overall worldview has been changed from your experiences, both in the military and since getting out? I would say that, you know, through my military career, I wasn't really political like uh, like you just said, but I've kind of run the whole gamut of, oh, well, you know, I'm a Republican. Oh, wait, no, I'm a, uh, a libertarian. No, I'm an anarchist. And I've just kind of settled on being completely apolitical because as far as I'm concerned, we just get fucked by both sides. And you have this... Uh, I remember my first deployment, there was talk about, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying that she was going to end the war, that they're not going to fund it anymore, and it was going to be over. Well, I mean, it, I don't think it's been like, what, it's been 17 years, and we're still over in Iraq. We're still over in Afghanistan, plus whatever, however many, every other country uh, in the world that we're at. And it... it as far as the military and veterans are concerned, we just get used as political pawns looking at the – oh, I guess without going into uh, too much politics because that's, uh, that's not a good route for me to go down. But it, it just definitely shows that pretty much everything that you are told from the perspective of the way you feel about certain people is, is just a, a lie and you're a continuation of the, just the normal colonialist uh, mindset that – don't don't worry about things overseas. The military uh, is great and will take over uh, the problems because you know. Remember, we got to kill them over there so they don't come and kill them over kill us over here. Never mind the fact of asking, like, well, what's the difference at that point? What's the difference between having, uh, depending on how you look at it, you have the attacks of nine eleven and the the big thing that used to get me was you know oh well we can't let these uh, these sacrifices of those who've been killed go in go in vain but at some point when when does somebody have to say that we should be done and as far as my you know outlook on life it doesn't seem like it ever is done and just, I'm sure you know, just the more I dig into history, it's just the same exact thing over and over and over. 
it doesn't matter if you're reading about the war of 1812 or, you know, now politicians lie to the public. The public believes it. The public has to love the military because if you don't, then you're, you're insert whatever, uh, whoever the enemy is at the time and you just go about your day. And I think that's why the problems that exist do exist because there's no, there's no concern displayed by the general public that is long enough or loud enough that actually gets things uh, to improve. And my interaction with my congressman just really kind of was the 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 final uh, you know like I, I'm just I'm completely giving up on this game because the people that are supposed to help you don't and. I don't know. I think I kind of rambled on uh, about that. Right. So, I mean, overall, it sounds like you from a very, very different route kind of came to similar conclusions to me. You know, in my case, it was more from just kind of studying these things and and digging deep into history. And I know you've you've read into history quite a bit since you've been in the military, but I don't I don't think you really had had done that before. But you kind of through the harder through the harder route of kind of first person uh, experience going out there into the into the front lines, like literally um, of the empire kind of came to the similar conclusion I came to from the safety of just studying these things is that, you know, you can't you can't trust the elites um, of any particular party or group and that most of what you hear in the mainstream media is suspect and you know that the the soldiers are just sort of pawns and that kind of thing um but i'm curious you know we've obviously heard a lot about all the all the terrible things that you've been dealing with i'm curious looking back are there any things that are positive that you feel that you gained kind of as a person um, from your military service? Are there any things you look back and go, well, you know, I'm not, not necessarily that like they were so positive that they were worth the negatives, but is there anything that you look back on and, and feel was a positive thing that you got out of it? And if so, what would those things be? I mean, I would, I would say that everything I experienced, I, I can take it as a, uh, as a negative or positive. I mean, just from, the the more of the the army thing like uh or the military thing like hey be be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there even that just seems to be such a a trait that is lacking with a lot of the people that i've met that aren't uh military the the world the worldview we've gained through uh you know just different experiences and especially since around war I I don't think that there's any way that I could have had the position that I do now without actually, you know, just being out there and enduring the uh the the terrible things that go on in the military. I mean, you know, I have to carry stuff with me uh that is bad for the rest of my life, but I understand how life works. It's not just this blind patriotism that most people have and even when you uh because uh my my father i he he's just 
the absolute red-blooded Republican, yada, yada, yada. And I I tried telling him about this stuff and being like, hey, you know, like things aren't the way that we're being told. And he just he just refuses to accept it. And I don't know if I would have been the same way, but I know with uh, with experiencing life over there and realizing that Iraqis or Afghanis are no different than any other person. It's definitely helpful to remove any of like that racial bias you might have. Uh, I mean, as far as uh, practical things, we were talking uh, right before we started recording about, you know, I I have a, a really good mechanical knowledge from uh, working on helicopters. I changed my job specifically because I didn't feel that I had uh, any of, I, I guess, what you could just call like man skills, you know, uh, fixing a car or you know, things along that route. And, you know, I'm really thankful for the experiences that I have gone because they, they just, they make me a better person. Of course, you know, I could have done without all of the, uh, the medical problems, but even looking back now, uh, I would say the overall, it was a, a positive experience, but, uh, if you were to ask me now whether I would go uh, go back and do it all over again, uh, no, I wouldn't. Or at least I would try to do it more more sensibly, like get an actual job that doesn't involve going into combat. Definitely would have been a uh, a preferable choice. But I mean, you have to you have to live with the the choices that have been made, and I'm still overall pretty happy. Hmm. That, that's interesting, um, and and that's good that you're able to you're able to see even the negatives as sort of like learning type experiences or, or growth experiences in the long run. Obviously, you know it almost didn't turn out that way for you for a while, and for a lot of veterans, they're not able to ever ever get to that point to have that perspective, unfortunately. Um, and you know, we always hear because in society in general, it's almost always just totally positive about the military. You know, we always hear the old cliches about you know it teaches young men and these days young women as well things like discipline and a work ethic and you know a sense of just kind of like getting things done and and you know doing things um, by procedure and, and all these sorts of of things. You know, I mean, the, there's there's certainly characteristics I admire about soldiers in terms of, you know, physical courage, uh, some of their, their skill sets I admire, you know, the, the discipline and that sort of thing. But I always just sort of wonder, like, isn't it too bad that there's not, at least in, at least in kind of mainstream American society anyway, there's not like an easily available substitute wherein you could gain some of those positive takeaways, um, without all the, all the negatives, you know, without all the, all the baggage. I mean, um, you know, and obviously as, as someone with anarchist leanings, um, in a manner, preferably that's not just like bolstering authority and all that. Um, but that's more, you know, where you're learning some of those same skill sets and attitudes, but like more in a, in an, in a way that's more ultimately about self, uh, self empowerment rather than about, you know, serving this giant, uh, uh, corrupt, bureaucratic, authoritarian system, but I don't know if such a if such a thing is ever 
is ever going to be possible or come into existence. It's just, it's just one of those things I've kind of hazily wondered about, you know, is there a way that you could, that you could have some of the positives without all the, all the terrible stuff, but. I mean, I, I don't know if they're like still real things or not, but I know the, the biggest aspects is you have to experience, uh, life or culture outside of what you consider your normal. You know, I talked about when I went to high school here, this is a predominantly uh, Hispanic community. And so many of the, we'll just call them white people. So many of the white people that I know just cannot handle. I mean, you see videos of it all the time. Oh, you know, oh, speak, speak American or get out or go back to your country or whatever the, you know, the, the racial term used is but being in the military and i mean uh and if you study history at one point this was mexico that i'm standing in or native americans or however far you want to go back being able to experience other cultures and realizing that what you're being told on the tv about every morning everyone in iraq wakes up and they they burn their flag and shout death to America. Like it, it's, it, it's no different than any other place you might live with the exception that it's, it's a war zone. And even where, where I live, live uh, funny enough, is as close to Iraq as you could get without actually being there. I mean, we've got a very high crime rate. Uh, I, I would say probably comparable to where I was minus the, you know, the bombings, but being able to having have gone outside of what is my comfort zone has allowed me to be accept all of these, uh, the actual truths as opposed to, you know, my father that I was talking about, he will never believe it because he's never experienced anything outside of, you know, his, his own life definitely be better to find a way to have those experiences without going to war. Like you were talking about, I don't know if uh, like, like the peace corps or if those things are, if those things are real or if they have the same like impact, but yeah, I would definitely say travel and actually living outside of your norm is, can be very beneficial to your world outlook yeah, especially if you if you go into it with an open mind, because I do see, and I'm sure you have as well, um, plenty of Americans who, whether it's in the context of military service or just in the context of travel, uh, for some other reason, you know, the, the people who, who go travel to another country and they kind of go into it already with a closed mind of, oh, these people are just a bunch of, you know, inferior people they're not american blah 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 sometimes people even have this attitude when they're going to another country that is like another you know relatively prosperous successful first world country they go into it with this kind of close-minded um condescending attitude from the get-go you know so i've known and i'm sure you probably have known as well people who serve in the military overseas and come back if anything like doubled down in, in some of their sort of prejudices and closed mindedness. And then there are the people who have the experience more like you, where it's, it's the opposite effect, you know, their experience um, kind of opens their mind up a bit more. They start to have a little bit more empathy with people uh, from very different cultures and all that. Um, so, you know, I think part of it is the, the, the individual's personality and attitudes kind of going into 
into that situation. I mean, it's it's a very small example and and not nearly as as dramatic or different. But you know, every every spring for the past few years, I've taken a group of students over to Ireland for you know a little bit less than two weeks. And it is interesting every time it's a different group of different group of students. And every time, like you can see the ones that go into the trip um, with a good attitude, you know, where they're like really just want to learn about this place and experience it and everything. And then there's always a small percentage who kind of go into it and you got to wonder why the hell they would sign up for the trip and shell out the money for it. But, you know, they go into it already like with this attitude of, I'm not going to try any new food. I'm not going to, you know, try any new experiences. I'm just going to try and like everywhere I go, I'm going to order chicken tenders off the menu. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, try anything new. <laughs> um, it's, and it's always a small percentage on that trip, but you know, it always just drives me and my buddy who's, who's the other teacher on the trip. It always just drives us nuts. These students were like, what, why did you why did you sign up for this trip if you're not even gonna like kind of open yourself up to it and but anyway um I'm curious um if there is anyone listening who may be a young person of you know military age or getting close to military age and thinking about maybe joining up. Maybe they're not if they're a regular listener to the to this podcast, but um, if they've listened to a lot of Dangerous History podcast episodes, they probably have had second and third thoughts. But if there is anybody listening who's a young <laughs> young person who's you know thinking about what about maybe joining up, is there anything that you would want to say to a person who's in that boat as someone who's gone through it? I would say probably the, one of the big, biggest things is knowing how to manage your expectations. You know, talked about it several times about the military isn't what is portrayed in the TV and it might might not even be whatever is portrayed by like family members and such. I know that I was like when I went into the military and I I really thought that, you know, it was just going to be a you know, I, I I don't know, like this fraternity of people that are all same goals, same orientation, and everyone, you know, is working towards a common purpose. And that's not what it is. It's not what it is at all. I mean, you can call it an extension of high school uh, because it does come down to, you know, like popularity and clicks and everything, whether you are, you know, accepted or not. I don't think the military necessarily is a, you know, a, a, a bad thing, especially for, you know, a lot of people do get a lot of benefits from it. I got a lot of benefit from it, but you just have to know going into it that you, you, you have to learn as, as you go as to what the military is. And if you keep holding on to this preconceived notion, uh, things are going to be pretty rough. I mean, I'm sure some people can go through it and, you know, everything goes perfectly fine for them. But being somebody, uh, being somebody who's gone through it, uh, I would, I wouldn't stop my children from going into the military, but I would want to make sure that they are as informed as possible. And the best way to be informed is, you know, things like this, listening to, people that had, you know, different experiences and can speak to what it actually is as opposed to what you think it is from your preconceived notions. 
And um, oh, sorry. Uh, I would say that uh, finally, you need to uh, really think long and hard about the job that you choose. Because I, I did, I wasn't thinking about it at all. And the job that you choose really does make a huge impact as to your not only but your experience, but your your after experience. You know, if I would have been able to go straight into a job, maybe I could have bypassed a lot of these uh, these medical problems that I've had, especially like the the PTSD and everything. Because being in the military, I didn't really suffer from any of the problems. It wasn't until I had uh, been discharged and having a plan. You know, if you're going to go in, okay, how are you going to deal with getting out after four years or after a career? Because that that's the, that's the other thing. There's no career planning for you. It's it's something you have to do on your own. I guess we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up. On that note, so I just want to say one more time, BT, thanks very much for uh, the amount of time you spent talking to me and for, you know, coming on the show to share all your stories and all that with the Dangerous History Podcast audience. I really appreciate it, and I know that they do too. And um, just, you know, is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention or anything like that that we didn't get to in all of our discussions? Uh, I mean, I, I would just, for the people that are interested in hearing more, uh, you know, I do have my website and I I take pauses every now and then just because it definitely gets too uh, overwhelming. But I've got a lot of these stories and, you know, things in more detail that just, you know, c- continue to, my, my goal is to eventually maybe have somebody, uh, you know, help with the, the issues that veterans go through. But until that happens, I mean, uh, that's something is probably one of the best ways to actually make changes. And that's my, that's my goal with, you know, what I'm doing here and with trying to spread, spread the word about, you know, what goes on. Sure. And, uh, as, as with our previous episodes together, um, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes, for this episode on, on my website as well. And um, just want to say thanks again very much for for uh, offering to come on and for spending so much time talking to me. Thank you, CJ. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best 
most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.